0: Farm to Fork, a program de- dedicated to exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the Valley's culinary world, from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, and packagers, to brewers and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Jessica, co-host Sue Timberlake, and show producer Caroline Rutterman. Mm-hmm. Join me in the studio. And today we'll be talking with Abra Dresdale, social designer, consultant, and educator. So welcome, Abra. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jessica.
0: So, Abra, I met you several years ago when you co-taught the permaculture design course that I was taking here in Northampton, Massachusetts. So I was curious, um, what in your early life led you to permaculture design?
1: Mm, Thanks for that question. Um, I grew up in the Mahicanatuck Valley, also known as the Hudson River Valley, uh, and the Catskills of upstate New York, and my connection to the natural world um, as a young person uh, was a a big part of my reconciling process in my early 20s as I kind of reemerged out of consumerism lifestyle of adolescence and was really interested in in what does it take to uh, get more mainstream folks connected to the natural world and understanding the Incredible diversity, variety of of fodder, fuel, fiber, medicine, food—that's um, right outside our door. And I think that that early imprint um, of my my early childhood days exploring rivers, streams, mountains is a big part of that influence.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So, a word that comes up uh, repeatedly in your current work is regenerate, uh, meaning formed or created again spiritually reborn or converted uh, restored to a better higher or more worthy state so what made you and your co-creators choose uh, this word
1: yeah i was thinking uh about this question and i think you know a lot of time there's focus on renewal um and revivification but to me that is sort of reviving what has been in the past and a certain nostalgia for what has um you know come to pass and regenerate in contrast to me is how do we recreate anew how do we evolve what was in the past take the best of it and also um adapt and learn and create something um that that has a new uh, approach and essence that really responds to the shift in contexts we're always adjusting to. And to me, that is the, the core of regeneration um, and why I've chosen to use the verb regenerate uh, to to name the organization I co-founded, Regenerate Change um, embedded in a lot of the courses I teach, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you, yeah, you co-founded and now Direct, you just mentioned Regenerate Change, so what were the original goals of this organization?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we started really as a project, I co-founded it with my friend and colleague, Jasmine Fuego, who's uh, based out of Oakland, California. Um, and it originally was a change makers tour that we received a grant for that we needed to create an organizational entity to um, implement this this grant and this tour. and. We went to four or five centers that we had identified as change-making hubs um, and we're partnering with local artists for um, you know, shows uh, for social change, performance artists. Uh, and then we paired that with trainings on the regenerative design process applied to social landscapes um, rather than physical landscapes. Uh, and that was the, the beginning of what has now evolved um, Five years later to the the organization regenerate change
0: Mm -hmm. uh and who so were there other helpers when you started that project and what did they bring to the project
1: um we had partnered with two co-host organizations in each city um so for instance in burlington um it was the young writers project and center for whole communities um we partnered with uh, wild seed farm and healing village in upstate new york and so these different hosts um, brought together participants who were already working together on shared aims and projects um, and we were able to interview them understand where they wanted to kind of move their um, staff and volunteers and we curated trainings uh, working in concert with them to teach Um, their participants and staff, the the regenerative design process and how to apply it to their own personal lives as change makers to avoid uh, the pervasive patterns of martyrdom, uh, burnout, overextension, in some cases, white saviorism. Um, And then how do we also apply the same design toolbox to thinking about our social impact projects and and how can we create more wholeness and less fragmentation? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, we um, also partnered with Empowerment Works, um, who's a a 501c3 based in California um, as our fiscal sponsor and um, yeah, received a a few different grants from different resilience organizations to enact the tour.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So uh, what aspects of one's life can benefit by applying uh, regenerative change?
1: I mean, I'm i a little bit drunk or sold on the Kool-Aid. I, I think there really is no aspect to which we can apply these frameworks, mostly because they're derived from the perennial wisdom of, of nature, of ecological principles. Uh, we think about biomimicry, you know, like, what are the ways that species have evolved for millennia, and how can we mimic uh, those patterns, those principles, and design social change in accordance with them? Um, and then I'll say it's also grafted in with social justice praxis and theory um, and things that have been tested over and over again in different movement building spaces so um, you know you have this kind of body of wisdom it's a very syncretic um, approach for generative design especially applied to social change and so to answer your question specifically i think you know these these different um practices and or fundamental patterns in nature can be applied to our own lives, to our interpersonal relationships our family systems um, all the way up to ancestral healing our relationship with the unseen world and of course to social change changing policy changing structures um, designing our organizations our businesses our institutions etc so every scale really and that that is what we do at regenerate change is um, resource individuals and uh, social mission driven entities to to apply this across scales
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm uh so abra folks out there who aren't familiar with biomimicry can you think of an example um how- yeah like
1: if you know if, if you look at the way that certain um like fish are shaped in a very aerodynamic way and and move through uh, water seamlessly there are you know extremely fast trains that are designed in this way to to mimic that um and create less friction
0: mm-hmm. So abra, are you saying that everyone can benefit from regenerative design?
1: Well, I think that it's it's not so much like a, a missionary perspective of like everyone needs to drink this Kool-Aid too. I think that we are inherent designers, right? That's like who we are as human beings. We design every day. Mm-hmm. We design the outfits we wear, the meals we cook. And I think part of what we do is help people make that inherent um, gift and process more explicit. And how can we apply it to whatever... Um, is in need of, of redesign where we want to set our sights on. So, um, yes, is the answer.
0: Mm-hmm. So can you give us some examples of, uh, regenerate change projects that you've worked on over the years?
1: Sure. Um, you know, we have a, we have a small team. Um, so it's myself and, um, Jasmine. Fuego so has since, uh, moved on to an incredible job with Skillshare. So, um, I'm currently running it with Adam Brock and Asia Dorsey who are out of, um, Denver, Colorado, uh, Yavapai territory. Um, and then we have two uh, essentially junior staff, um, Jordan Williams and Lila Rimelovsky. Um And so, you know, across the, the spectrum, the team works on, I would say predominantly um, uh, food justice, um, access projects, as well as thinking about um, culture design for organizations moving out of toxic Uh, capitalist, extractive culture towards more wellness, towards more collectivity, um, democracy, um, inclusivity in terms of different dimensions of of difference and undoing oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically, the the work that I have dedicated myself to in the last few, I would say the last seven or eight years now um, is around prison food justice and also climate justice. Um so for instance, I've been uh, working with farm to institution, New England on creating a whole new sector called um, farm to Prison or farm to corrections um, that you know is certainly looking at procuring, local regional healthy whole foods Uh, also menu redesign um, local food and nutrition education and and now we're also starting to put some attention on um, workforce re-entry into the food system and in a very tangible way uh, in greenfield massachusetts i had supported the the franklin county Jail, working closely with the sheriff there and other key stakeholders in Franklin County on creating a farm to excuse me a um, a jail to farm to college and employment program partnering partnering with Greenfield Community College, the farm and food systems program there. Um, that I had co-founded back in 2011. And we migrated um, five or six uh, GCC farm and food systems courses inside the jail. Uh, Currently we have five gardens um, that serve sentenced men, women um, serve men who are re-entering back into the community through the transition house. Um, And there's been many family programs, including now a quite large um, garden or even micro farm. Uh, In the medium security unit, it's called the uh, Food for Families program that incarcerated men are actually providing for their loved ones on the outside by growing food that their family members get a weekly distribution share of um, every every week while increasing their their skills with cultivation, um, but more importantly, their sense of sovereignty and agency um, and community resilience. Mm -hmm. So... Those are, those are some projects. And, and I'll just mention, I've worked closely with Madeline Charney, who many of you probably know, um, librarian at UMass Amherst, on um, supporting an incredible network of, of library workers in New England um, that she's been um, cultivating who are working on climate resilience and climate justice. And I've um, been consulting for and leading trainings for that network for the last four years or so. Um, so those are those are some examples of some of the bigger projects and then, of course, we we resource change makers one on one and lead all sorts of trainings, um, both virtually and in person all over the country at this point.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, actually, Madeline was one of the uh, people who started the show way back. I can imagine uh, probably that. close to twenty years ago, right, Sue? Wow! Yeah, they did the first five years. Um, so, so I presume, Abra, that before the inmates started growing food to provide food for the for themselves um they're probably getting sort of government issue staple foods um
1: Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm, tr- I'm,
0: trying, to, I'm trying to picture what, what they're that eating. Still the fresh vegetables. Um, mm-hmm. I would
1: say a vast majority of the, the food served there and in all correctional facilities, you know, mm-hmm. go to the lowest bid. That is policy. Um, and mm-hmm. that includes lots of uh, highly processed foods, carbohydrates, mm-hmm. um, deeply sugared fruits. They're not allowed to actually have fresh fruit because technically you can create alcohol um, oh, with that, you know. Um, so, but what I, I will really commend uh, Sheriff Donnellan for is that um, he has uh, committed 5% local food purchases that can go above the highest bid because in Massachusetts, um, there's a, a certain loophole and if sheriffs deem there's additional or added value to um, going with someone who's not the lowest bid, they can actually do that. So we've been procuring um, local potatoes and butternut squash,
2: um,
1: lots of like veggies in the growing season and and actually buying um, frozen processed produce from the Franklin County CDC that um, is just, you know, the product is just sitting there and not going out to schools and so um, getting a, a a good uh, bargain there for you know carrots and peas and frozen broccoli etc um that is going into uh into incarcerated folks bellies um the food that is grown is just a drop in the bucket and there are equity issues so you can't just serve you know like one unit um the fresh local salad and cherry tomatoes and not the other unit so it's Mm. the food that's grown there is really more for educational purposes and for the families Uh, so we still have quite a ways to go which is why i've been really rallying behind farm institutions efforts to to create policy change and like a regional new norm in new Mm -hmm. england around Mm -hmm. food food procurement practices and these in these correctional facilities
2: any connection to hampshire's correction house of corrections or not yet
1: um, you know, I've, I've built some relationships with them. They have a really cool wellness program and labyrinth there and, and certainly offer undergraduate courses. Um, but you know, culture varies from institution to institution. Um, and it seems like, uh, that's, you know, that's going to be a, a little bit longer trying to get some local food in Hampshire.
2: Good to know. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so Abra, I mean, your this project, uh, well, sounds super new, no- super, uh, noble in a lot of ways, uh, I always think back to my volunteer experience with different, you know, community meal sites and food pantries. And it, you know, it always strikes me when, you know, the clients are coming in and you're handing them the food that's in. I mean, even sometimes, you know, expired cans of food and, Mm -hmm. you know, out-of-date stuff and mostly junk food, you know, the sweets. and And I just, you know, I look at that and I think, how are these people supposed to you know get a leg up when they're eating this unhealthy unnutritious but of course that's what they're used to so if you hand them a you know fennel or something you know something they've never seen before of course they're not going to know what to do with it and they're not going to want to eat it uh so it's it's hard but i you know i started in uh, imagining uh like aquaponics you know have the aquaponics set up at the survival center northampton so they're you know, they're raising the fish and they have their vegetables growing there and passing Mm -hmm. that food out instead of, yeah, the stuff from that's just not not healthy and not healthy at all. Uh, So, yeah, so you're, I love, yeah, I love listening to you talk about this project. Um, And and maybe I'll
1: just add to Jessica, I think that is a common hurdle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the ways that we've um, found some traction is you'll, you'd be surprised. I mean, especially you know, college students who are who are taking courses on food systems are are starting to critique the food, right? And it's the education that's paired alongside, and we do real projects for the students. Um, you know, capstone or final projects where they actually make recommendations to the House of Corrections about how to change um, their composting practices, or mm-hmm. their menus, or their procurement practices. And we we invite key stakeholders and administrators in to hear those. And there's actually been um, a significant amount of change in terms of what happens on the grounds or in the canteen. Um, but I will just share one small anecdote, which is. We use Leah Peniman's Farming While Black book um, for the last few iterations of the food systems class I teach through GCC at the jail. Um, and in the back, she has a bunch of Haitian recipes, and there are a lot of Caribbean heritage folks who are in Franklin County Jail and are finding connection through their ancestral foodways, remembering foods that their grandmas would garden or teach them about, or certain smells in their their family's kitchens. And so, I think that curiosity of connecting with their own ancestral food ways um, was really inspiring so then the, the winter iteration of the cooking and nutrition class we actually used uh, Tony my colleague Tony Hall um, used all of the recipes there from farming well black and mm-hmm. and I think that is another way that's been really imperative for um, folks to feel their their food agency and food sovereignty and curiosity about eating you know things beyond the, the ramen that's so prevalent mm-hmm. in. in right.
0: Mm -hmm, Exactly. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton, and we're talking with Abra Dresdale, social designer, consultant, and educator. So Abra, um, were there any other things that you learned from this um, food prison project?
1: So much uh, about change making in the belly of the beast is about relationship building. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding the social ecosystem of who's the gatekeepers, who are the champions, who are the allies, who are the adversaries, right? And and not in a binary way, but understanding the current positionality of the, the members in this ecosystem. And then how do you build relationships? How do you find common ground? Um, who are the adversaries? And, and what, when it boils down, do you both care about Mm -hmm. um and what's the appropriate way to build those relationships right is it is it going into um sort of the staff room during the coffee breaks and and having coffee and sitting down Mm -hmm. um or is it like scheduling a meeting and like wearing appropriate attire and like you know pitching pitching an idea that you know like oh this will actually help reduce recidivism or this will create more um you know, uh, strategic partnerships in the community for the House of Corrections, etc. So, so much is about relationship building and and, and in a really authentic way. Um, and then I find that the, the yeses are so much more common than the noes. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, I would, so I, I'm just curious whether the people in charge there at the presen- prison, I mean, there's so much, now I say it is a
1: jail, it's a county jail, which jail. is a little bit different than a prison. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry.
0: Uh so at the jail, you know, there's so much about being local and eating local food now in the valley. I mean, at, at any point was it good for them to sort of jump on that bandwagon and I mean, yeah. is is any of it about we want to sort of look <laughs> yeah, we want to look oh, good sure. in, in some in any institution,
1: <laughs> right? you know, you want to put a feather in your cap and mm-hmm. be part of the like, you know, do-gooders and and that's not always a bad thing to um you know ride on that sentiment mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. so Abra, what is a typical day like for you uh as a regenerative change maker
1: there is absolutely no typical day <laughs> <laughs> there's like <laughs> typical seasons i would mm-hmm. say um but my work is so diverse and the sort of like adaptability resilience thinking on my feet uh, in terms mm-hmm. of what we're responding to at regenerate change how um, what we're responding to with like internal dynamics how are we modeling the things that we are purporting to consult on um it's a very live um moment so there's no typical day but that said you know pandemic pre-pandemic you know everything right now honestly is, is very virtual and remote and um that's that's hard for me as a tactile person and I love teaching um with an actual group um but yeah it's you know it's a mixture of of writing the newsletter of posting a, a blog putting some like um educational content out there then there might be some um, resourcing calls. Like I've been working with a change maker who co-founded a project called Navajo Power, which um, is working on energy sovereignty in the Navajo, Diné Nation in the Southwest, and and solar panels on the reservations there, and um, and so like you know resourcing them in their their strategic um, action plans and culture um, could be uh, meeting with my team and thinking about the educational calendar um, could be putting together a different curriculum. I have an upcoming companion course called Regenerative Design for Change makers a social permaculture course that goes along with my book Um, and so I've been putting a lot of uh, energy into creating you know video lesson plans and uh, posts and exercises and trying to recreate that uh, creative synergy that we would normally have in classroom culture when Mm -hmm. students are learning online Um, and I continue to teach at UMass Amherst as an adjunct faculty in the um, sustainable food and farm program and that's that's also been really exciting place to you know, get student feedback on um, ideas and trial things in real life and kind of create a, a feedback cycle between the theory and the praxis.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like you're very busy. And you just, and I have a baby. You just mentioned a five <laughs> month old. So I'm, I'm assuming your life's gonna have to shift a little bit now yeah. that yeah now the baby's now moving. now that
1: he's about to start crawling for sure <laughs> oh yeah
0: yeah that definitely changes uh, changes things a yeah. big way uh so Abra we live in a world uh without borders because of the internet now um so what impact has that had on your your career
1: i mean in some ways the you know i mentioned that change makers tour which was which was in the Northeast, right? And developing these hubs. And now because people are just so much more inclined to be on the computer because of the constraints of the pandemic, um, we have participants on uh, the Regenerative Changemakers Network, which is a mighty network. Some folks maybe don't know about. It's sort of a socially conscious, um, you know, Facebook paired with a learning management system. And um, and so we have, we have incredible change makers and activists and um, community organizers and and social permaculture folks all over the world having these conversations. there's uh you know different like pollination events that we're co-sponsoring and different time zones so that's really exciting kind of the the confluence of ideas coming together in cyberspace um and i you know i think that certainly like the the constraints is that so much about this work is relationship based on the natural world and that's about relationship building and there's certain limitations to to doing that in a really authentic um heart-centered way when you are just, you know, posting something to a feed and hitting a like button. And I'm not a millennial. I was born in 1981. So, you know, this is like, I'm not, I'm not a, I This is not. I'm not a. a I guess they call them cyber natives, which also seems sort of problematic term, but um, I'm not somebody who uh, naturally flocks to this. And yet I'm trying to adapt and be resilient. And of course, there's so many benefits. Like I mentioned, you know, I can be working with folks in the desert Southwest um, before where I was like, you know, just sitting down face to face with people
0: Mm in new england exactly uh so Abra, you wrote the book um regenerative design for change makers a social permaculture guide uh, which you mentioned and elizabeth lesser uh who who was the co-founder of omega institute and author of the new york times bestseller broken open how difficult times can help us grow how to say this about your book so often, I avoid books about environmental decline, climate change, and ecosystem breakdown. Too scary, too heartbreaking, too overwhelming. But this guidebook combines hopeful inspiration, hands on solutions, and user friendly science that is accessible and relevant to everyday life. Thank goodness for change makers like Abra Dresdale who are charting a path toward a livable future. Mm-hmm. So, how would you describe um, this book in four sentences or less?
1: Uh, there's two sections the first section uh invites individuals into understanding that they are a blueprint for systemic change and how to dive into uh, identity power privilege purpose will uh, and design one's life and and one's outward facing work the second section each chapter is dedicated to a step in the regenerative design process and participants and readers take a project of their choosing through the social design lab and actually learn the process uh, in an applied way. Um, and so that's that's what the book is about.
0: Mm-hmm. Very exciting. I love the hands-on piece. Uh, so what, what kept you motivated through the writing process for your book?
1: I started writing it the January that Trump was inaugurated. So that was um, pretty motivating. I didn't quite know where to put my energy and I had been, uh, you know marinating on this uh, book idea for a few years. And uh, honestly, it was it was the best thing I did. Every, every week, three days a week, I would go out to a little cabin on the property I was renting in Shelburne Falls, Salmon Falls, and just sort of download um, what was coming through and then paired it with existing curriculum that I had been teaching at Omega Institute at the um, Vermont Wilderness School in Prattleboro. Um, at UMass Amherst and kind of wove everything together, pulled in frameworks from other trainers and thought leaders with their permission. Um, And it only took me a year and a half to write and it was one of the best uh, creative and work projects I've ever done. Mm -hmm. That's great.
0: We need to take a station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Abra Dursdale, social, social designer, consultant, and educator. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, an independent, nonprofit, community run station in Northampton, Massachusetts. The show streams on valleyfreeradio.org, where you can also find our program schedule and become involved with the station.
2: Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the Air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre,
1: take requests and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there.
2: Hi, I'm Mark. This is Diane Lane. If you're thinking of exercising to keep more fit, that's great. But be sure to do it right. Give your body a chance to warm up before exercising and to cool down afterwards. Learn the correct way to run, lift, or to do any of the movements in your program. Don't push yourself harder or faster than your body is ready for. Exercising properly can make you more fit, more relaxed, and generally healthier. Carelessness or abuse can do just the opposite. So be careful. A message from the Will Rogers Institute. WRInstitute.org Thank you. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome, co-op ownership is not required. Open daily, 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Co-op. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley.
0: My name is Jessica, Sue Timberlake co-host and show producer. Caroline Ruderman joined me in the studio. We've been talking with Abra Dresdale, social designer, consultant, and educator. So Abra, um, what did you hope to accomplish uh, by writing your book called Regener- Regenerative Design uh, for Changemakers, a Social Permaculture Guide?
1: I think the big picture that I have been courting, Jessica, is um, a coordinated culture shift. And so um, how to resource change makers and that, you know, it's a broad term by choice that people can identify across any sector of change um, and how to resource them in doing their work effectively and joyfully and shifting from um, practices and paradigms predicated on the fragmentation, uh, so rampant capitalism, towards more wholeness and, in a sense, more planetary healing, regeneration, justice, and equity. Um, and so, in writing the book, I thought that would be a uh, know, a form of of media and something that would be respected in social permaculture, permaculture kind of, you know, it's, it's like a nascent field. And I think there's like images of white middle class hippie back to the landers and a non rigorous process. And um, I am an alum from the Conway School of Landscape Design there in Western Mass. And we learned a very rigorous design process. And I thought, how can we apply this to social change instead of just um, physical landscape change? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that, that different um, change makers would be able to access these frameworks, apply it to their lives, but then have conversations across sectors. To create coordinated culture shifts from, you know, the transportation sector to housing to food to governance, um, et cetera, and, and how do we really design um, that sort of what what the founders, the co-founders of permaculture, call a graceful descent um, out of like you know peak oil, peak fish, peak petroleum, peak consumption um and how do we do it in a graceful way and how do we do it in a liberatory way in a way that's never been designed so that was the my premise um we'll see how far you know that that vision reaches in my lifetime and beyond um but it seemed that writing a book was the thing to do and it brought me joy and so it was a Mm -hmm, mm win-win
0: so Abra, where can folks find your book
1: um regeneratechange.com is Mm -hmm. uh the best way to do it because it goes to the source it is also on amazon and some other um, online marketplaces
0: Mm -hmm. awesome uh and what um so you mentioned the companion course a bit earlier in the show Um, do you want to let people know when that's happening how they can sign up
1: yeah um so it's a it's a seven week online course it's asynchronous and by that i mean um you can log on anytime. There's no scheduled Zoom meetings, um, but there is new content released week by week. Um, and actually, we were going to. Um, have it be the spring and because of many COVID disturbances and, and change makers' schedules, um, so many more people were available to do it this fall. So it will be um, now offered uh, in October, November, specific dates are not out yet. Um, but on my website, abridgeresdale.com under events or on our Regenerative Changemakers Mighty Network, um, people can find out those exact dates
0: mm-hmm.
1: as it gets a little closer. Um, but yeah, it's, it. you know, the book is dense. It's not like a, you know, just sit down and read at your leisure. And so because there are 45 exercises um, spread throughout 14 chapters and, and tons of resources and discussion prompts, it's really meant to be um, a living curriculum in a lot of ways. So uh, I'm translating it into different forms of media for all sorts of learners um, and creating an online learning cohort um, that will be offered through our Regenerative Change making. Um, online uh, learning management system. So that's that will be the course, and um, I think it's it is hard to find social permaculture in general. You know, I think Starhawk and Pandora Thomas and Lisa Piano have really. Been a lot of the the trailblazers in this, um, but it's it's not something that is widely distributed. And um, I hope that this can be an accessible way. We offer three tiers of sliding scale. Um, we have all sorts of voices from different thought leaders all over the country that um, have you know contributed to the curriculum uh, with their permission. We use it in the in the course, so it's um, it's hopefully going to be something that will make the book really come, come alive.
0: Yeah, sounds, uh, yeah, on top of everything. So in terms of the act of publishing a book, uh, how, I assume the process has changed uh, over the decades. So my impression is that more and more individuals are publishing their own books, so there is less of a barrier for authors. Is that what you found or no?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I I think, yes, you are correct in that trend. Um, That said, um, you know, just very short story about my book is that I I wrote it. I was um, selling what I call the beta version after 2018, and I was shopping it around. Um, It got picked up by New Society Publishers based out of Canada. They were excellent publishing house, you know, published Joanna Macy and Starhawk and Paul Cuvell, and incredible authors. Um, And so they picked it up and the book was slated to come out September, 2020, May, 2020, early pandemic, uh, near bankruptcy, you know, put a lot of pressure on small publishing houses. And so they had to cancel half their titles, including mine, which was Mm -hmm. very disappointing, um, but understandable. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to forge ahead and self-publish. And it's a hard road to go. Let me just say there's many many challenges and hurdles and you know I have design skills graphic design skills and I have you know some level of writing skill I hope um some level of publicity skill and it is, is extremely challenging so that said I still did it um I think it is for some people I don't recommend it for everyone but it certainly is much more of a, a sense of commons and community access in a way that never was before for for different authors with fantastic ideas. hmm
0: well, I was also curious of, um, you know, now that there are ebooks uh, a lot of ebooks out there, format as an option, does that make it uh, easier to publish if you went to digital
1: uh yes and no um (laughs) that's like a whole whole other conversation and my Mm -hmm. book will be out as an ebook there is you know it was um created in that form and yet there are like just so so many hurdles um to to actually like moving from concept and you know correctly formatted pdf into into Mm ebook yeah
0: uh, will you ha- uh, be having any local uh, book readings? Um,
1: I, I hopefully will. I, I did one through UMass Amherst um, online in November mm-hmm. um, that UMass libraries hosted. And um, now that I'm a new mama, I'm kind of uh, taking the book tour rollout slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing on the schedule to date um, but yeah, ho- hoping to do some some locally and some in back in Denver. And also, I just wanted to note, um, I am extremely sleep deprived because my baby wakes up about 12 times a night. Oh my um, goodness. And I wow, think that awesome. I had talked about <laughs> Denver and the indigenous folks being Yavapai. And that was my time um, spent in Arizona. And it's actually the Ute and the Arapaho folks. So I just wanted to make a correction. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's my... Uh, my colonizer legacy blind spot. Speaking as I am uh, extremely sleep deprived, I so
2: just wanted to note that for this show. It's So nice to be joined us tonight. <laughs> I have some dumb questions. I'm the one who will answer. Oh yeah, to- please. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I remember that uh, in grad school they talked about informal and formal sort of power, and mm. when you're in a group, you can you know who you know is the supposedly the manager. And you can see the formal lines, but to, you almost have to be there to be able to understand who's the informal sort of opinion leaders. How do you, how do you handle that in a in sort of an, a you know a zoom a zoom world now? Or, mm-hmm. you, because yeah. a lot of times, as you mentioned, somebody will be an ally, and another will sort of be not an ally, and sort mm-hmm. of sorting through that sounds like some of the hardest hardest part of a process to change a culture.
1: Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of um, the uh, Grist magazine's Fix Lab events in the last two years, especially around climate change. Um, and so much happens in the private chat you have no idea what's going on, you know, like everyone's like public and and then you're kind of like, okay, like this is happening and this is happening and this person has this position and oh, that person, like, should we like call them in on this thing that they said? Um, You know, and that's just one example. It's not just on fixed lab, but like, that's the kind of, I think, sort of adaptation as a human species we need to be doing as we interface in these different ways. And um, yeah, you're completely correct. It's hard to read the room. I think it's really hard for for folks who may be have any kind of like neurodivergence and can't like understand what's happening because the body language or people have their screens off. Um, But I think, you know, certainly uh, private chats are important. And then also just doing our reconnaissance and, you know, emailing, setting up a phone call, trying to understand who has a better picture of the ecosystem or context that we're walking into doing this work Um, and really having that contextual understanding as we show up for a Zoom meeting. But Certainly I would say even on group email threads, I think at least I am sensitive to power dynamics and and can kind of like hear voices and of course make assumptions always and many times there can be erroneous but um, I think for those of us with targeted identities, there's many signifying cues that we are sensitized to around power over dynamics, yeah. Thank you for that
2: question. Yeah, and so um, so follow up phone calls with individuals sometimes just to sort of check in and see where they are. Or it it sounds like quite a juggling act to be mm-hmm. able to change a social culture. And did you want to define social culture? Because I heard that and I was like, okay, I kind of mm. know what it is when you do a landscape right. <laughs> in the physical world. But I'm I'm kind of ignorant when it comes to what oh, sure. what you mean by that.
1: You know, and I, I think. It, it's how we each define it for our own selves. But I would say like what are the um, dominant practices, policies, protocols, what are the spoken and unspoken norms um, of a group, of an organization, institution. So for instance, um, is, is uh, you know, overwork uh, an unspoken norm that is an imperative for keeping your job or getting certain perks or benefits. Um, and, um, you know, I think the, the way that we enact culture has to do with how we relate to each other. And some of that is formalized through policy, um, and some of that is informalized through through common practice.
2: This is a tough one. I don't know if I should even raise it, so I'll say it, and then, Jessica, you guys give, can... Give it to my
1: sleep-deprived mind. We can <laughs> kick it out or
2: not? Well, and you said white saviorism, and that's hmm. a new term to me, and I didn't know what that meant. If you want to sure. touch on it. and If you don't, it's fine, too, because yeah, this no, no. is more um, of a food show. But.
1: <laughs> there is a uh, current set of practices and legacy of imperialism and colonization that exist in this country and worldwide. Um, And a lot of the justification for that imperialism was um, missionary work and christian saviorism of of savagery right and like manifest destiny and how do we kind of civilize the brutal world right these are the narratives that were used to justify genocide and enslavement etc um and so i think that especially for folks who maybe consider themselves do-gooders, there's a lot of self-reflexivity work that I, myself included, have had to do, um, particularly working with communities impacted by oppressions that don't affect me, um, because the saviorism narrative is just so ubiquitous. It's hard to be born in a Western culture and not internalize that, particularly if we are people that benefit from class privilege, from whiteness, from educational privilege, et cetera, to want to kind of come in and quote, save uh, you know, a food insecure community or an urban blighted community. Um, and that's really problematic and, and can recapitulate those colonial dynamics, can recapitulate power over dynamics without even realizing that we are furthering the the practices and, and paradigms and policies that went hand in hand with saviorism and colonization in the past. It's just sort of morphed its form and becomes more sort of insidious and um, socially acceptable. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And my last question, if I can have one more. I'm looking at Jessica. She said yes, I guess. Oh, can you can
0: you hold that for sure. a Sure. You're listening to Farm to Fork On Valley Free Radio, W X O J L P one O three point three FM in Northampton. And we're talking with Abra Dresdale, social designer, consultant and educator. Sue, you're on. I'm on. Mm-hmm. Oh
2: so so in the very beginning you you mentioned Hudson River Valley, but you said another <coughs> name. I assume it was um indigenous name for Hudson. Hudson River Valley.
1: Yeah, Mah- Mahican Atuck is uh, the the word that means that the the ro- the waters flow both ways because the the tidal um, the salt that coming up from the Atlantic. It's a um, the tidal wave, so you can actually all the way up to I think I can't remember. It's Sagerties or Albany, New York. Um, you can get brackish waters. Oh, and so talk is the, the original name and Henry Hudson was the colonial explorer for whom the more common name is uh, used.
2: So when w- working with groups, you, you so you um you like to use names that speak to all the folks that are involved in the area. Is that <sighs> sort of a practice yeah, I or, mean, or an acknowledgement? I know out here there's a lot of names. I know on Martha's Vineyards, there's a lot of names that, people find offensive mm -hmm. because they were, as you said, imperial.
1: Yeah, and I think this gets back to the question about white saviorism. Um, A good article comes from Teju Cole, the white savior industrial complex uh, in the Atlantic. So that could be something um, folks could look into further if they're curious. But I think that the way or one of the ways I should say that um, colonization and occupation of this continent occurred and continues to occur is a form of violence around invisibilization and language suppression um, is a really important instrument for the imperialist and so re-languaging what were the original names of of mountains and rivers and places of inhabitants um, for thousands of years, and presencing those names uh, pushes against that that tendency to invisibilize um, and and as such to to suppress and kind of culturally and linguistically wipe out a people. Mm-hmm.
2: It's funny, I was listening to a news show the other day and Reverend Al Sharpton was on and they were talking about, you know, all the horrible things that just happened. And somebody um, called in or one of the other guests said, don't forget um, the American Indian because a lot of the conversations were about all these folks but never mentioned you know sort of what we did to the original folks Mm -hmm. that were here Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of shocking he was really good i mean he just quickly said yes you're right i i omitted that when i just spoke but it was sort of shocking to have him do that on national tv it was good Mm -hmm. it was really good Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i think there's definitely more consciousness you know cannot happen fast enough mm-hmm. um but often you know i think when we think about racism in this country um the the indigenous folks are are deeply left out of that dialogue um not always but as a, as a cultural norm um and uh yeah there is just bloodshed and displacement and enslavement and exploitation um, that has happened as the basis of our food system coming back to farm to fork. Mm -hmm. You know, this, all the agriculture that is occurring um, in the valley, in our happy valley is all on stolen Pecumtuck land. So, you know, I think it's a really important um, part of of talking about our food system and especially when we're talking about reparations.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, noticing, you know, in the media and individuals, uh, I mean, I can appreciate that black people wouldn't want to be farmers because they had such a terrible, you know, such a horrible experience. Um, but now, you know, I'm seeing, uh, well, all people of color kind of coming, coming back to farming, uh, which is, I think is wonderful. Uh, and So, you know, I can imagine that they're probably – sort of reimagining for themselves you know what what it means today Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah and i think also to add to that too jessica i think Mm -hmm. you know there's been so many people who have continued the legacy of farming black folks included but Mm -hmm. certainly you know Latinx folks, indigenous folks, mm-hmm. and, and the Pecumptuck people who were in the Connecticut River Valley were were practicing a form of sedentary agriculture and um, prescribed burning, you know, hunting and foraging, but certainly there were um, pseudo-domesticate crops. Like, there were different, uh, you know, ground nuts and amaranths and husk cherries, and there, there were so many forms of actual sedentary agriculture that were happening here.
2: Mm-hmm. We had one guest on who talked about the blueberry barrens that are north of here that were maintained by indigenous folks for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's still blueberry barrens and they're still being harvested. It's very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when the, explo- the explorers came, they're like and what an amazing, luscious paradise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was not a wild landscape. This was a highly tended Mm-hmm. Um, like with deep science and deep ancestral um, experience mm-hmm. landscape, where there was vistas for hunting, and there were overstories of chestnuts, and you know there were understories of, of wild strawberries. And um, this is this is the the landscape that was then turned into uh, sheep and logged landscape, and we lost uh, so much soil and erosion, and so much biodiversity in the in the after effects of, uh, the colonization that occurred here and the displacement of those traditional farmers that were creating this landscape of abundance. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Very sad. Uh, so Abra, in what ways do you apply uh, your teachings uh, to your own life?
1: Oh yeah. I definitely need to do that more, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I, you know, I, I will not be too hard on myself because I definitely apply frameworks. So for instance, uh, I'm organizing one of my dear friends uh, is having a baby in a month. This weekend is, uh, it's called a blessing way. I like to call it like a hippie baby shower. Um, And uh, I'm facilitating and designing the ritual for her. And one of the frameworks in my book is called um, the life sector analysis. And we look at different life sectors and, you know, each person can name their own, but can be things like, social life and financial life and spiritual life and you know physical exercise life um and so in organizing this i'm thinking about the different sectors she's becoming a mama for a second time and thinking about the the things she's been saying she wants to be doing differently and Organizing those sectors for her to speak on at her blessing way, and how can we support her and and help hold her accountable, mm-hmm. um, so that she can have the whole life that she imagines in this in this next round of mamahood. So, certainly the frameworks, um, you know apply to my personal life and my, my communal life. And then uh, anytime I'm designing, you know, a course or an experience, we always start with the context. Who's coming? What are the demographics? What are the aims? What's the the story of the place that this is happening in? And and what are the goals? And then what do we need to analyze and marry those goals and analysis together so that we can um, come up with a really relevant designed curriculum or experience. So um I'm always kind of doing it like the back of my head anyway it's like you know it's it's sort of ingrained in me at this point Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. well Abra we have about a minute left uh there any last factoids you want to throw out to the audience I know you did you want to mention your general classes that you offer every year how people can Um, find those or
1: yeah well I teach at UMass Amherst uh, as I mentioned Uh um And you can take it through continuing professional education. So if you're not seeking college credit, um, Mm you can still take them. I have an intro to permaculture course starting in two days. Uh, There's three seats left. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every spring I teach that course along with a social permaculture for food justice. Mm -hmm. Um, I teach the, I co-teach, I should say, the ecological literacy immersion program at Omega Institute, which is again online this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say that I, I am really itching to write another book. Uh, on ritual design, which I was just speaking to a little bit, uh, regenerative ritual design and thinking about rites of passage and life and death cycles, which I've been through quite a lot of in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but this has been a passion of mine since my early 20s and, and a big focus on my undergraduate um, thesis research. Mm-hmm. So if there's any publishers out there that are excited about ritual design, I am not gonna self-publish again <laughs> and I would invite you to reach out to me and I can send you send you some thoughts. So mm-hmm. that, is, that is where I'm aiming. To, to take my um, regenerative culture work uh, in the next five years is specifically around supporting um, ritual and how do we uh, work with ancestral trauma, grief, life, and death in a meaningful way that creates um, wholeness and less uh, compounded harm.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds great. So we'd like to thank our guest, Ava Dresdale, social designer, consultant, and educator. You may find additional information about Farm to Fork on valley free radio's website valleyfreeradio.org our theme song sometimes i wonder where my food comes from was written by scraggly dan and the stragglers for this farm to fork radio program and performed by artists
1: thank you so much jessica mm-hmm. Thanks Thanks, for love, everyone. thank you